As we get settled, let me remind you, we are in 1 Samuel, picking up in the middle of chapter 14. Grab your Bibles, 1 Samuel 14. We'll be picking up at verse 24. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, we we truly are desperate. We have all sorts of things going on in our minds and in our hearts, and we just need the Holy Spirit to, to bring clarity, to bring focus, and to allow us with faith to receive the word tonight for our hearts and for our lives from the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, some context. Uh, Israel has her first king, but it's not King Saul who's getting all the press. It's his bold, faith-filled son, Jonathan, a true warrior for the Lord. Now, as you'll recall from chapter 13, it was Jonathan who took his 1,000 troops and successfully attacked an enemy uh, Philistine military outpost and overthrew it in an effort to now liberate Israel, his people, from the ruthless occupiers. The Philistines had no right to be in Israel at all and let alone enslave the Jews in their own land. And, uh, but in spite of Jonathan's daring uh, success, this has started a full-on war. Now, you'll recall that he stirred up a a hornet's nest now, and the Philistines uh, have gathered for battle. It's like, uh, uh, who do you Israelites think you are? You don't have any weapons. You're totally outnumbered. And they have taken this as a real insult that Jonathan was able to overpower one of their outposts. And so now uh, Israel knows that they don't have weapons and that they're outnumbered. So now that the hornet's nest is stirred up and the Philistines are gathering to uh, uh, strategize an attack, uh, the, the, Jews are, the Jewish army is in retreat and they're hiding in caves, in uh, abandoned cisterns or wells, in thickets, anywhere that they can find cover. Uh, the only two in the whole army who have weapons are two men. Only two people have swords, and that's King Saul and his son, Jonathan. But not everybody, as you recall, is hiding like scared little wabbits in a hole. Now, Jonathan, now for the second time, is going to boldly move to action. Now, you'll remember that while Jonathan's uh, kingly father, Saul, is hanging out with a corrupt priest under the shade of a pomegranate tree, Uh, While action needs to be taken, Israel's soldiers are hiding out in terror in holes in the ground. Uh, Jonathan realizes something's got to be done, and nobody's doing it. So Jonathan looks at his armor bearer, and you'll recall from last time together, he says uh, to his armor bearer, you know that the Lord doesn't need a big army to save. He could do it through me and you, an entire army. Let's me and you go up because you know what? Me and you plus God is greater than the whole Philistine army. And so that's the kind of guy that Jonathan is. Let me say this about that. Uh, The Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 17, and then he repeats it again in Matthew 22. When the Lord Jesus repeats something, it's very important. 
And here's the paraphrase of it. You can uproot the most entrenched problems and overcome mountains of difficulties with just a tiny pinch of faith in God. Nothing would be impossible for you if you just had a pinch the size of a mustard seed. And so you know what? Jonathan's got that pinch and probably a little bit more. Uh, you'll recall, and just for context's sake, uh, the two of them start climbing the hill up to the outposts there. The bad boy Philistines are on the top waiting, and the two devise a strategy to hear some confirmation from the Lord. And what's their plan? They say, okay, let, let's start, let, let's allow them to see us climbing up. If they, the Philistines, invite us to keep on coming, then we'll see that as a sign from the Lord. And the Philistines do just that and say, hey, come on up here, fellas, and we'll teach you a thing or two. And so they did. They came up there, but it was Jonathan who was doing the schooling and not the Philistines. And so they cut them down. I guess I got a couple dozen of them right at the top of that precipice there. And so... Um, the Lord blesses Jonathan's efforts. He rattles the earth. There's an earthquake. Uh, he, the Lord sends thunder and panic and confusion to the bad boy Philistines. And now they are the ones running for cover. Now, quite the, emo quite the commotion, I should say. Uh, now you'll remember as we get ready to dive into verse 24 that King Saul hears the commotion. It's quite a ruckus up on top of the hill. And what is his first and foremost concern? You'll recall from last week. Uh, it isn't prayer, and it, it, it's not joining the army and help supporting the routing of the Philistines. No. It's who's stealing the show from me. It's who's trying to get the MVP award here. Who's usurping my place? Who's vying for my position? Quick, get a roll call. We'll find out who's out there without my permission. And the roll call goes off, and the name comes back. The only one missing in the whole army is your boy, Jonathan. And then there's dead silence. And we're going to find out tonight how he felt about that and how he's feeling about Israel's heart going toward his son instead of toward him. Let me say this before we dive in, a beautiful quote, and I've quoted this to you about him before because it's his insecurity that takes him down. It's his insecurity. I love what one writer said. Insecurity is the quicksand of the soul. Insecure people are driven by fear, obsessed with themselves and their image. Their lives are filled with envy, fueled by jealousy, and the need for control and constant manipulation. It makes life very unpleasant for them and everyone around them. So in this, these chapters that are unfolding, you and I are privy to Saul's demise, and it's at the core of it is unbelief and insecurity. We have front row seats. We watch a man full of potential. Huge privilege. Just throw it all away because of undealt insecurity. And you don't often hear of insecurity as a sin. We just think of it as low self-esteem or something. But I'll tell you what. Persistent insecurity 
is a sin because what you're doing is distrusting the promises of God, putting yourself at the center and resisting uh, God's will. So as we dive into verse 24, we all pray, Lord, please heal us all of a me-focused life. Amen? Amen? So thanks to Jonathan's courage and faith, the Lord's intervened now. The Philistines are scattering, all right? And Israel's armies are in pursuit to finish the job. Verse 24. Now the men of Israel were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be any man who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies, so none of the troops tasted food. So they're in pursuit, and they're not allowed to eat. Verse 25, the entire army entered the woods, and there was honey on the ground. You're kidding me. When they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out, yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with an oath, so he reached out the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb. He raised his hand to his mouth, and bang, his eyes brightened. Now, you can't see the bang in there, but it is. Trust me. Then one of the soldiers told him, dude, your father bound the army. Sorry, I got a dude in there, too. Oh, we got two extra words that don't belong. <laughs> okay. Your father has bound the army under a strict oath, saying, curse be any man who eats food today. That's why we're all faint. Jonathan said, my father has made trouble for the entire country. See how my eyes have brightened when I tasted just a little of this honey. How much better would it have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from their enemies? Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? So we'll pause there. Uh, Roman numeral number one, the me monster strikes again because it's all about King Saul. Now, verse 24, you see right away the motive of this guy's heart. It has nothing to do with the Lord's battle or for God's glory or even for Israel. Listen to what he says. It's all about him and vengeance against his enemies. John Woodhouse, a great commentator on this passage, wrote, The man who did not obey God in chapter 13 now makes no reference to God, expresses no confidence in God, and was obsessed with, quote, avenging himself on his enemies and coercing his people into supporting him. It's all about him. And you remember what James tells us about selfish ambition. When you are all about yourself and you lead a life that's all about promoting you and your cause, there you will find chaos and every evil thing. Well, that's what we're going to find in Saul's life. From a wrong focus, then, comes a wrong idea to proclaim a fast and utter a curse on any soldier who ate food till it was over that day. First of all, where's his authority to be uttering curses? He thinks he's the high priest now. He doesn't have that authority to... to, to to enlist something that should be voluntary. A fast is voluntary. The Lord didn't even ask them to fast. 
He didn't invite them to fast and say, hey, I'm fasting for a personal thing in my own heart and life because I'm so proud and stubborn and insecure that I'm, I'm personally fasting. Any of you guys want to join me? But no, he threatens them at their, on their own lives. Saul, you don't put the entire army under a forced fast when you want vengeance on your enemies. Now remember that even spiritual things can be wrong when the heart is not right. So on a day when men, soldiers, are fighting and traipsing around burning thousands of calories, he's commanded starvation for them. It doesn't sound very smart. And here's another quote. Self-centered people forfeit wisdom and common sense because they're too busy gazing in the mirror instead of looking into the Bible. I like that one, amen? Where does wisdom come from? From above, James chapter 3 and verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from above is pure. Then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And you can be sure that this is going to be far from King Saul. Why? Because he can't look up. Wisdom comes from God. It's having a mind that can get off of you and inward things and on to God. And how your actions and your deeds and your thoughts and your goals affect God and other people. He's not going to see that because he's all about him. Why did he do that? Why, why would you proclaim a fast on the day you need the caloric intake? Uh, uh, if, you, if we called in Dr. Phil, as I often like to try to do, and say, what's up with Saul? And Dr. Phil might say, and I'm not going to try to imitate him, even though I'm tempted to right now. Dr. Phil might say, you know what? He wants to take credit for the victory, so he needs everybody to focus back on him and how spiritual he is. He's called for the ark. You'll remember that as a lucky charm. You know, he's got the priest by his side, though he's not very interested in what the priest has to say, is he? (laughs) The priest was doing his thing and pulling out the answers, and he's like, oh, withdraw your hand. That's not important. You know, so he's got the priest for a show, because everything in his life is about a show, and now a holy fast. And so the most important reason probably is like the Pharisees who will come a thousand years from this date, Saul's spirituality is for others to admire. Not a genuine, genuine reflection of his own heart. And there might even be a more wicked, very dark motive in proclaiming this fast. And they don't want to give it away, but I think I'm going to try to make a case for an ulterior motive here as the text unfolds. And by the way, a private, genuine fast might have been good for him. Um, So instead, he he makes the dumb move, a showy forced fast. He's weakened and discouraged his men. And so now here are the soldiers, famished and traipsing through the forest. And what do they find? Verse 25, Israel's the promised land. And how did the Lord uh, describe it? He said it was a land filled with what? Milk and honey. Now, I don't know about you, but honey is one of my favorite all-time fruits and vegetables. (laughs) 
That is just a food group in itself, just plain honey. You know you can take some warm, fresh-baked bread with some butter and some honey? Forget about it. Now, God's provision. Who put that honey oozing all over the place? These are starving soldiers. They're famished. They need some zip. They need a sugar high. So what does God do? He just, well, there you go. There it is, God's provision. Tired, hungry army in hot pursuit. A little sugar to help finish the job. And so the army sees the honeycomb oozing amber of gooey goodness. <laughs> Verse 26, paralyzed with fear. What a torture. They're, they're starving. They have burned up 10,000 calories. Easy. Do you know how far it's been already? 15 miles. Wow. 15 miles pursuing these guys with nothing in their stomachs. And then the, the, they have to look at that. And they're just stopped dead in their tracks and they're just staring at it with big, big open eyes. You know the look. <laughs> Jonathan hasn't heard in verse 26. He doesn't know about his dad's ridiculous vow or oath or putting these guys under such restraints. Uh, you know why? Because he was busy fighting on the front lines and winning without the Ark of the Covenant, without a high priest by his side, and without fasting, just with faith. Hmm. So he dips the tip of his staff into the golden goo, and he touches it to his lips, and he gets some of that deliciousness in his mouth. And the lights come on. He's got energy. You can kind of hear it humming. And in verse 28, then someone informs him, by the way, <laughs> did you not stop and think, where were you guys like two verses before? <laughs> they wait because they want him to eat it. Do you know when you're on a diet and somebody's standing there and you're looking at the cake on the counter, you want them to eat it for you, don't you? I do. I just want to enjoy everybody just watching them and enjoying it vicariously. I think that's part of it. The other thing is they're waiting. They're watching. They're saying he's doing this in innocence. He doesn't know, but it'll be an open door that once it's broken, perhaps we're going to get some food too. So that's the only way I could understand that is that nobody tells them, but by the way, oh, after he's done it, they're all watching him, slowly do it. He does it. He comes to life and they go, oh, we forgot to tell you. Uh, you're going to die now because your dad just mentioned that, you know, if we ate anything today, we'd be executed. Um, and by the way, that's why we're all ready to pass out if you haven't noticed. So um, Jonathan doesn't seem too worried. Uh, he knows the oath was bogus. He knows the men are starving. He has common sense. He knows that the army's compromised. He knows that God has provided the nourishment there, and he puts it very nicely. Here's a paraphrase. He says, my father has put us all, the entire nation of Israel, in a difficult spot, hasn't he? Look how... I've come to life since I had a little honey. Wouldn't it have made more sense to have eaten the plunder of the food supplies left behind by the Philistine so that we could have done a better job finishing them off? All right, verse 31 through 35. 
That day, after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Aijalon, they were exhausted. They pounced on the plunder and taking sheep, cattle, and calves, they butchered them on the ground and ate them together with the blood. Then someone said to Saul, Look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that has blood in it. You've broken faith, he said. That's Saul speaking. Roll a large stone over here at once. Then he said, go out among the men and tell them, each of you bring me your cattle and your sheep and slaughter them here and eat them. Do not sin against the Lord by eating meat with blood in it. So everyone brought his ox that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first time he had done this. So number two, then a stumbling block. So the army is stumbled by what? Whose fault ultimately is this? Because they transgress a Deuteronomy law about eating meat not prepared in a kosher way, which I'll explain in a bit. But who, whose fault, really? I mean, we all answer for our sins, but the Lord Jesus says, hey, everybody's going to get tripped up, but woe to the person who causes them to get tripped up. He says, by and large, people stumble. It happens. But watch out. Woe to the one who stumbles them. Who stumbled them? They're like wild animals. Why? Because of a dumb oath said in haste. The proverb says there's more hope for a fool than somebody who speaks in haste. And so the sun goes down, apparently, and uh, they come upon some plunder there in verse 32, and livestock left by the Philistines, which will make a fine victory barbecue. Uh, but in their hunger-crazed delirium, they disregard kosher food preparation laws. There in verse 32. Now, kosher means, the word means fitting or what's allowable. All right, and so there were certain foods that the Israelites were banned from eating, and it has no connection to health in the Bible, zero. It's only connected to holiness. And it would seem that a lot of the connection and why there were certain foods that were taboo was because of how the pagans around them used them and worshipped them and did all kinds of weirdnesses. And the Lord said, you know what? They're going to know you're different by a lot of ways, but by the things you eat as well and the things you don't eat. Now, uh, eating kosher, so, so for example, the, there's a list of uh, items not on the menu in, in Leviticus chapter 11, all right? But uh, eating kosher not only described what you couldn't eat, but how you could prepare it. So the pagans, about the blood thing, the pagans were really into blood. They still are, even today. Uh, they, they drink it. And they have all kinds of ritualistic, terrible things, vile and perverted ideas about blood. And God wants his people to have nothing to do with it. And there seems also to be a little bit of a connection with the life and the blood that, uh, that, and redemption and Jesus' blood. They're, he's just making a distinction. And he's saying to them, I don't want you to eat meat with blood in it or be like those pagans around you. By the way, the new covenant releases us from all 
dietary restrictions. Mark chapter 7 and verse 19, Jesus proclaimed all foods clean. Romans chapter 14 and verse 20, all foods clean. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3, don't let anybody give you a hard time about what you eat. You may eat anything because when you pray over it and have a thankful heart, you can receive it with God's blessing. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. So I digress. It's not that they weren't roasting the meat. It was that it wasn't properly prepared. They couldn't wait to, uh, I'm sorry, drain the blood from the animal properly because they just wanted to just get to the eaten part. Now, verse 33, it comes to the king's attention that Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verses 23 through 25 have been now violated. And for me, I'm not sure that this would be a big deal to the Lord because the Lord knows the letter of the law law versus the spirit. Now, in chapter 21 coming up, David will bring a bunch of starving men into the temple or the tabernacle area. And he will ask the priest for bread, and the priest will say, you know what, we only have the bread that's the consecrated bread in the holy place. And he gives it to them, and they eat it. And Jesus said that was a good thing. Matthew chapter 12, he he tells the Pharisees, you guys are such hypocrites with all your rules and regulations. What What do you say when David went into the temple and ate the bread that only the priest should be eating, and he gives it to his hungry guys? So I'm not so sure that even God would have said to them, you know what, you know, you have to take some time here for an hour and drain the blood the the way that we've, you know, be that as it may, maybe he would have. But I think the point is that following false legalistic commands led to breaking a true, genuine command. I love this idea. David Guzik, listen, we often think that legalistic rules will keep people from sinning. Actually, the opposite is true. Legalistic man-made rules lead us into sin because they either provoke our rebellion or they lead us into legalistic pride. So in other words, he's saying, hey, this this is a fast. Nobody needs to eat today or you'll die. Look how holy we're gonna be now. Look how we've earned God's favor. But it was legalism, and it led them into breaking a true command, which was a dietary restriction. All right, so moving on. Saul tries to do the right thing here. You know, uh, he's still a hypocrite because, you know, he, he, he cares about outward things, but not inward realities. And so uh, the thing about Saul that is most scary to me is, is that not everything he does is wicked. Because then you see him wanting to obey the Lord and rectify and do the right thing and build an altar. But then the narrator, Holy Spirit, says, and by the way, it's the first time the guy ever did build an altar, which is a total slam to tell you he's not the most spiritual guy on the planet right now. You see, he built an altar, but it was the first time he ever did. Well, that why it scares me is because you can't just throw the whole guy out. You can't just say, what a monster, how terrible, he's such a hypocrite. But then you see humility. You see him trying to do things right. 
oh, he's just so scary because I can identify with him in so many ways. There's a Saul that lives in you and there's a Saul that lives in me. 36 to 46. So Saul says, all right, they have the barbecue. Let us now on full tummies go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them till dawn. And let us not leave one of them alive. Do whatever seems best to you, they replied. But the priest said, hey, let's inquire of God here. So Saul asked God, all right, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hand? But God didn't answer him that day. Saul therefore said, Come here, all you who are leaders of the army, and let us find out what sin has been committed today. So he's taken God's silence as an accusation of guilt in Israel. So he wants to get to the bottom of why God is not speaking to him. Uh, Verse 39. As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if it lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. Hmm, he's already ready. Isn't that rather quick that he comes to the conclusion that it might be his son? And letting everybody know, and even if it is him, he's going to die. Hmm. But not one of the men said a word. Saul then said, because they all knew and they're not going to tattle. Saul then said to all the Israelites, all right, you stand over there. I and Jonathan, my son, will stand over here. They said, do whatever seems best to you. Uh, Then Saul prayed to the Lord, the God of Israel, give me the right answer. And Jonathan and Saul were taken by Lot. So now they're casting lots to see who caused the problem. And the men were cleared. Saul said, cast the lot between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. So Jonathan told him, I merely tasted a little honey with the end of my staff and now I have to die. Saul said, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you don't die, Jonathan. But the man said to Saul, should Jonathan die? He who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel never As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. For he did this day with God's help. For he did this today with God's help. In other words, God's with this guy. So the men rescued Jonathan and he was not put to death. Then Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines and they withdrew to their own land. So number three, the plot thickens. And here's the question of the day, at least for chapter 14. Was the curse that King Saul made on anyone who ate anything that day deliberately given to trap Jonathan? That's what commentators are asking. That's what Warren Wiersbe believes. Why? Well, number one, he knows Jonathan wouldn't have known about it. Number two, He knows Jonathan would probably eat that day. And number three, he knows that he would then violate the vow and be subject to death. There's no make sure Jonathan knows. He needs to get rid of his rival. The hearts are turning to Jonathan. They love him. Did you hear that in their voice? 
Look what God did through him today. And the reason that the Lord let the lot fall to Jonathan wasn't to answer Saul's prayer, but to expose Saul for being crazy and a hypocrite and a murderer and to also reveal that God is with this guy. So it's a dangerous thing to be up and coming and well gifted and liked around an insecure power crazed king or person for that matter. If any of you have encountered that in your careers, in your classrooms, in the church, as a young man in ministry, had an unfortunate experience. You can just put in the details yourself, but it happens in the church as well. Insecurity. King David, and this isn't even in my notes, but I'm just thinking about how King David, when Absalom wanted the throne, King David said, if God wants Absalom to have the throne, who am I to stop it? And he was like, take it. And I'll let God vindicate me. If God wants me to have the position, I'll have the position. And I'm not going to cling on to the position with my fingernails because I didn't put myself in this place. I'm not maintaining my place here. It's up to God. And the problem begins and ends and is maintained when we cling to things because we think this is our place and nobody better take it from me. Herod the Great had his father-in-law killed, several of his ten wives, and he killed his two sons. This is the guy who also ordered that all the babies in Bethlehem under two to be killed because there was a threat of another king being born to take his position. So Saul is just the poster boy for all the kings like him throughout the ages, all the Caesars, all of these crazy power-hungry kings who looked around them, and if, if people liked the wife better or, or the father-in-law or, or the sons, off with your head because this is my throne. So here's how it all came to a head where dad is now pointing a sword at son Jonathan after the barbecue in verse 36, uh, or yeah, I was going to call it sushi, but after the sushi in verse 36, or the beef tartare, as some of you know, is raw beef, uh, uh, let, uh, he says, Saul says, let's go get him, wipe out every last Philistine. And the Ahijah, the priest, says, hey, why don't we seek the Lord? And so he says, okay. Uh, Saul says, Lord, should I go? And, and nothing. Well, here's what's happening is the priest is reaching in, and there's the umim, urim, and the thummim, right? Urim means lights, and the thummim means perfection. And so the high priest, as you've been told many times, is reaching in with a black stone or a white stone. Uh, that's the best guess. And you could ask the Lord guilty or innocent or yes or no questions. And so the way that the commentators say that this always would go is with a question. First of all, somebody would say, the priest would say, first of all, uh, Lord, would, do you want to give us an answer today? Do you want to be speaking to us? And the answer was coming up, no. 
And he'd try again, no. <laughs> and another again, no. So he doesn't want to talk. And so that's why there's no answer. He can't ask the question because he can't get past the, do you want to talk? And the, and, and the, the no keeps coming up. No, I don't want to talk. So verse 38, Saul interprets that uh, as guilt. Someone sin, verse 39, the next breath, even if it's Jonathan, whoops, I guess I said uh, that was too fast to just, I mean, even if it's anybody, yeah, so funny that it just came out of your mouth so fast like that. And you know, one commentator said something I didn't catch, uh, Saul, what a hypocrite, this guy in next chapter is going to spare a wicked king, King Agag. Oh, he's going to let him off the hook. The Lord said, execute him. And, the, and, and, and Saul's going to say, well, you know, I should a little mercy. A little mercy to somebody. God says, execute this wicked man as my justice. But no, you're not going to show mercy to your innocent, God-filled, heroic son. This guy's not playing with all his marbles. Amen. No, there, there's, he's one fry short of a happy meal. <laughs> or he's one, never mind. All right, so, uh, so they all know, the soldiers, verse 39, he wants to know who's guilty. Uh, no one's going to tattle on Jonathan. Uh, so uh, Saul asked the Lord to reveal by the lots. So verse 41, the guilty party uh, should come forward. Or, or be revealed through the lots, and the Lord reveals Jonathan. Wow. So the soldiers gather around Jonathan, and they say, in essence, uh, like that's going to happen, Saul. No. Take a look at this guy. God used him. We're not going to let you kill Jonathan. And Jonathan doesn't need to die. The oath was foolish. Jonathan acted in ignorance, and the Lord brought victory through Jonathan. Uh, which had more to do with the victory that day, Saul's foolish oath or Jonathan's bold faith in God? The guys, uh, the soldiers aren't stupid. They know Saul's gone off the deep end. So verse 46, so the men rescued Jonathan from his father's murderous wrath, and the pursuit was called off. You know why? Because they've spent so much time. On this silly errand, the Philistines, it's too late to pursue them. They could have if Saul wasn't all about himself. So let's just finish up here, verse 47 to the end, just a couple comments. After Saul had assumed rule over Israel, he fought against their enemies on every side, Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment on them. He fought valiantly and defeated the Amalekites, delivering Israel from the hands of those who had plundered them. So he had some good battles there. Saul's family, verses 49 through 51, is a roll call. You can read it at home in your leisure. Uh, verse 52, all the days of Saul there were, was bitter. Okay, all the days of Saul there was bitter war with the Philistines, and whenever Saul saw a mighty or brave man, he took him into service. Now, we're kind of summarizing Saul's life, you see, because Saul's life and is really come to an end. 
Oh, he's going to live a lot longer, and he's going to be in the palace a long time. But from God's point of view, it's been over. He already served him notice, remember, when he said, hey, you're done through Samuel. I've got my eye on a kid. He's in a shepherd's field right now singing some songs that are going to be very, very famous one day, the Psalms. David, at this point, right now, today, is alive, and he's a shepherd boy. He's a teenager. In this verse here, he exists. He's just not on the page yet. That's one more chapter. But he's doing his thing out there. And, and God has already got him lined up to come on in here. I just want to close with this one thought here, the last verse. All the days of Saul, all days, all of Saul's days were bitter because there was war with the Philistines. Um, here's what I got out of that. His whole life was a constant battle. Bitter. No rest, no peace, always recruiting, always counting the troops, always looking over his shoulder, always sharpening the sword, always drilling, always training, always fighting, always brandishing the sword, always maintaining the chariots. It says that. That's all he ever did. Every day he woke up and he went to bed, war, war, war. The Bible says, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies live at peace with him. You see, Saul wasn't pleasing to God. He wouldn't trust him. He wouldn't obey. He wouldn't humble himself. And he never had peace. He never had rest. Every day was bitter with chaos and threats and worries. No rest. Not like Joshua, and the Lord gave them rest on every side, Joshua 21. And you hear that a lot in the scriptures. Uh, peace in some measure is the believer's promised legacy. Now listen, constant chaos and upset and confusion is generally associated with a serious lack of trust, spiritual neglect, disobedience, or unwise choices. Listen to me. Constant chaos? Something's wrong. Unrelenting confusion? You're doing something wrong. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is peace. And true, you can have a lot of challenges. I mean, the Lord Jesus lived with a lot of conflict, and so did all the Bible heroes. But there should be a life that works. Pretty much, generally speaking, your life should be working if you have the God of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living by his spirit inside your heart. You've got the promises of God. Your life should be working even in challenge, even in a storm, even in disease, even in the loss of a, a loved one. And sometimes our lives go upside down. And I'm not saying, I'm trying to imply that when our lives do go upside down or the pressure comes on that it's necessarily your fault. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that when there's constant chaos, something's wrong. And it's not with God. It's with us. Peace. 
joy, love, gentleness, all of these beautiful things. Jesus saying, peace I give you. Peace I leave with you, not as this world gives, give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled. So examine your life. Let me examine my life and find out if chaos is coming as a fruit of some unwise choices. And let us look for the inner peace as we seek to trust and obey. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful word that instructs us and nourishes our souls and just just hear you speaking in my heart and affirming and correcting and comforting and guiding. And I'm just so grateful to have a living relationship with a loving Lord. We are all so grateful, Father, to know you and to not just be listening to some lecture, but to be hearing your spirit impart truth and life to us. Help us to grab onto these truths that you've just spoken so fresh and clear to us. Help us to implement them, to have the wisdom, to recall them and, and, and live them, put them into practice. In Christ's name, amen.